0: Welcome back to American Psyop, a podcast miniseries in 9 parts. I'm Emily Bix, continuing my conversation with Wesley Clark Jr. and our attempt to figure out what happened to him. So, last week we focused in on a period of time after the election and before Standing Rock, when you are encircled by a cult and triggered into believing you were the angel Metatron. This week, we're going to be getting into your stay at Standing Rock focusing on the time between your arrival on December 1st through to December 4th, when your experience shifted pretty dramatically. At this point, the mission is clear. You are going to try to stop the oil company, Energy Transfer Partners, from developing the pipeline any further. That's right. Each week, we've started talking about susceptibility. Now you are not only having a psychotic episode, you're entering an environment where you don't know the majority of the people you'll be working with. How do you think this contributed to your susceptibility?
1: It jacked it up to like a level of a thousand because you don't know what the baseline is for any person that you're interacting with or their backgrounds or their intentions. And everything could potentially be a threat.
0: So when we left off, you we were heading to the Standing Rock protest to lead an unknown number of vets who will act as the frontline. Your partner is Michael Wood and three people you're coordinating with include Travis who was brought on by Mike to act as a coordinator for the vets at Standing Rock. Remy, who was also already at Standing Rock and it helped to coordinate supplies. And then there was Sully, who drove up there with you.
1: Yes. Well, the plans going into Standing Rock, I had no idea what was waiting on the other side. I didn't know whether only 100 people were gonna show up or 1,000. Details this morning on those protests against the controversial Dakota Access Pipeline. The hundreds of demonstrators who are trying to block the project have been told they must be out by Monday. But the protesters are saying they aren't going anywhere. In fact, about 2,000 veterans are planning to join the protest next week.
0: There was no plan of how you guys were going to protest? Well,
1: in the operations order, I just simply said we'd use drill and ceremony to march around the enemy. And, and that we veterans would take the front lines so that if there was violence, we'd receive it and not the other protesters. The front line was the bridge. It had been closed, concrete barriers had been put on, lots of barbed wire, armored vehicles on the other side of it. The security team, they had identified an area that they could defend. It was a bridge whereby they held that bridge and kind of stopped our forward repelling of this threat. No! People were laying on the ground crying because they were being maced or pepper sprayed. The police! are protecting and serving a pipeline and protecting fossil fuel profits over human beings. They're macing people. And we thought, well, you know, we're going to go out there and we're going to get beaten up. I thought I'd go home maimed or that I'd be killed or I'd spend 20 years in jail.
0: I mean, it's a sad reality that once violence takes place in a protest, it gets even more press.
1: And the thing is, if you're on the side protesting, you can't use it at all. What you're up against is the power of the state, and you cannot win a violent power match because the second you do, everybody's instantly arrested. Everything's got to be peaceful.
0: So even in the psychotic state, you're not state, looking to start a war.
1: No. And this, of course, also all fed into my religious and spiritual ideas at the time, which is, you know, be like Jesus, be like Gandhi, go out there and get killed, but don't hurt anybody. Like, think of Gandhi's salt march. He did a salt march to the sea. Nobody laid a hand on the British soldiers. They just were all beaten and beaten and beaten. And so the world press and everyone in India saw these guys not committing acts of violence, having violence committed on them. So the idea was that we would simply take over, you know, the protest line if rubber bullets are going to get shot and tear gas and everything else. And we just stand there and take it, but that we wouldn't start doing that until the 5th. And before we took over the front line, we wanted to have like a healing ceremony, bring everyone together, clear everyone's consciences, just in case, you know, horrible things did happen on the bridge, we'd be ready for it. And then we'd just do it the fifth, the sixth, and then we would go home on the seventh.
0: Does any part of you think veteran stand might have been an intelligence operation from the beginning?
1: Yes. But I think once the decision was made to, hey, we're going to bring veterans there, The mercenary companies are probably all like, let's fucking stack it up with our guys. Because it's all about exploiting a changing environment. So if somebody's putting together a group of veterans among people that don't know each other, how would they know if somebody's with the mercenary company or not? Was that real? Were
0: there infiltrators in the camp?
1: There'd already been an incident earlier in the summer where a guy pulled out an AR-15, started waving it around. The Native American guy who disarmed him was the one who wound up facing charges.
0: Shocking video footage of a man who worked with the Dakota Access Pipeline. He was a pipeline guard, but he was wearing a bandana covering his face, carrying a rifle, apparently attempting to infiltrate a group of water protectors.
1: So, yeah, I was very worried about that. And it made sense to me since they probably had someone in our organization and could look at all our communications. That, yeah, that seemed reasonable. They probably did have infiltrators. So
0: there's some bad actors on the ground.
1: Oh, for sure. For sure.
0: Who did people think hired the infiltrators?
1: Kelsey Warren's the owner of Energy Transfer Partners, the company that is building the Dakota Access Pipeline. Well, in a recent interview, the head of the company behind the Dakota Access Pipeline, Kelsey Warren of Energy Transfer Partners, said he's 100% confident that Trump will support the completion of the Dakota Access Pipeline. Kelsey Warren has donated more than a hundred thousand dollars to Trump's campaign, while Trump himself has between five hundred thousand and a million dollars invested in Energy Transfer Partners. Tiger Swan was one of many security companies that were hired. To protect the dakota access pipeline but tiger swan to me seemed the best connected of any of them five years ago this was the focus of tiger swan's business working as a government contractor in places like iraq and helping train military and law enforcement personnel but a growing threat to corporate america created a new opportunity and former delta force lieutenant colonel james reese the company's
0: ceo and co-founder took advantage of it
1: tiger swan was Founded by this guy, James Reese.
0: In the last two years, we've moved almost 50% of our business away from federal government work towards the corporate world.
1: He's the guy who's literally in Syria pillaging (laughs) Syrian oil right now. They simply replicated war on terror operations against Americans. I think James Reese, the guy who owns Tiger Swan, had been part of Eric Prince's company, Blackwater. It was a mercenary company. And Eric Prince worked with China. It worked with Russia and worked with Saudi Arabia. And I knew that Prince was very close with the Trumps as it was moving forward because his sister was uh, Betsy DeVos, who became the secretary of education, but also that he had a big role in Trump's 2016 campaign. And Blackwater was one of these mercenary companies that grew up around the war on terror because Blackwater was then implicated in a massacre in Iraq, so they changed their name to Academy.
0: Also, when news of that massacre in Iraq surfaced and Blackwater was dealing with the public fallout, they used Tiger Swan as a purchasing front for land they wanted to use as a training facility near Fort Bragg in North Carolina.
1: Did it? Oh, I had no idea.
0: But even so, you still suspected that Tiger Swan, the main mercenary company guarding the pipeline, was connected to the incoming Trump administration?
1: Yeah. But at the same time, I, I assumed that there were infiltrators not only from mercenary companies. I assumed at this point that there were probably foreign intelligence agents worked in. I assumed that there were probably federal and state informants that were also thrown into the mix and that none of these groups were really coordinating with each other. Because I also went into it knowing how the mercenary companies and the Russians and all these people are intermingled. Like there was a disproportionate number of vets there that had Russian wives or girlfriends, even one of the primary planners. And I thought the Russians are behind Trump for a long time because of his ties to Russian organized crime it was after the election at this point it was public knowledge he was assisted in his election by the russians so there's multiple mercenary companies that are employed by the pipeline Mm -hmm. that are surrounding the camp and that are cutting off access to roads and stuff they'd already arrested and assaulted the protesters like many many times in the preceding three or four months
0: with the help of the state
1: with the help of the state Because there's a sheriff right there from the nearby county who's right there on their line.
0: Because at the time they had a contract to be working there. So it's not, they weren't trespassing.
1: According to the tribe, they were. Right. Because it violated the treaty. So you have to understand on the treaties that are signed with the tribes, the tribes are actually sovereign territory and the treaties that we sign with them are U.S. law. So you can't violate the treaty.
0: How did they make the deal if there was already a treaty in place that you can't mess with this land?
1: Because oil companies own legislatures. They pay for representation. So it's just a corrupt. It's a corrupt system. And there's always the promise. It's going to be a lot of jobs and a lot of money.
0: Mm -hmm.
1: And it's some jobs as they build stuff and it's money for people in far off places when the cash comes in. So I'm in the car with Sully and Trek and we drive out to the reservation. And right as we're pulling on to the reservation, my phone rings. And it's this guy who identifies himself as, this is Lonnie Wangwin. I'm the uh, North Dakota National Guard liaison. We're going to have a bunch of right-wing armed vets coming out to stand against everybody next week. And we wanted to talk to you about that. And I'm like, yeah, let's definitely talk about that because we're not actually looking to fight anybody. And the second I hang up the phone, Sully's like, dude, I bet they stingrayed your phone. Stingray is apparently a device that's used by intelligence agencies and police where they kind of zap your phone and then they're in your phone. So he's like, dude, your phone's been Stingrayed.
0: So when you get to Standing Rock, it's nighttime.
1: It's nighttime. It's cold. There's not too much snow on the ground. James had coordinated with Phyllis that I'd meet her in the casino when I got in. There's like this big field in the dark and there's this Super bright casino. Welcome to Prairie Nights Casino and Resort, owned and managed by the Standing Rock Sioux Tribe. We're glad you're here.
0: Is it big?
1: Like a full-on casino with a hotel that had, I don't know, two stories, three stories of rooms, five or six different kind of long haul wings to it.
0: And how far was the casino to where the protest was happening at like Standing a,
1: Rock? F- about a 10-minute drive. Oh, The casino was packed and there were vets, there were native folks everywhere, there were protesters from everywhere I got in and I'm standing by some machine that's, you know, like a slot machine, dinging stuff down as I'm meeting the other volunteers I communicated with. Phyllis is trying to find us a room and I remember some dude with like a green face tattoo like screamed and yelled at me out of the blue. Like, he was crying and freaking out. I'm like, oh, dude, it's okay. He's like,
0: bah!
1: it goes nuts. And I only bring up the guy with the green face tattoo because he shows up a couple more times when I'm out there.
0: Is it like on his forehead?
1: Yeah, like on his forehead.
0: Just a green...
1: Some I can't remember what it was. It was like some kind of faded green tattoo.
0: And what was he shouting?
1: Couldn't tell. Like, unintelligible. But I also realized when I got there that I wasn't going to be able to eat because everything had weed in it and I'm a celiac. So I was like, oh shit, man, I need to keep, I'm going to be living off apples for the next like seven days. So I got in, ran into James. I ran into a woman from Nexus, ran into a couple other people I coordinated with, and they called us all up to a room upstairs to meet with Phyllis Young and the headsmen of the horn who were like representatives from the different tribes that were there to try and keep order in the protest camps.
0: And And what was the vibe? Like, was Phyllis weary? Was she? No,
1: she was like totally calm, like a lifelong activist. Like, this is run-of-the-mill stuff. Let me tell you how it's going to work, kid. Basically saying, thank you for getting everybody out here, but this needs to be led by female Native veterans. And from here on out, you're just here for a spiritual journey.
0: Why female veterans?
1: Well, the entire protest at that point was pretty much a female-led protest. And so they wanted it to be female-led on the ground. And L'Oreal was the native female vet from our organization, Veteran Stand, who was put in charge of the operation when I arrived at Standing Rock. And I was like, okay, that sounds good. Really, within three hours of getting there, I was no longer in charge of anything. Which on the one hand, I was like, whew, that's a lot of pressure off me. So I'm like, all right, they're taking over. This is the way it's supposed to be. Because this is the other thing. Once you get into that headset, the crazy headset, it's like everything happens for a reason. Maybe one of these female vets will be like, Jesus, and I'll get to meet her. That would be cool. The headsman then spoke a little bit. They're like, look, here's the reality, man. It's like, we live here full time. So whatever is started and done, you getting killed or your head broken or something, they have to deal with the fallout of it for maybe decades. And Phyllis said this as well as the headsman. They're like, you being... Anywhere near the front of the protest, there are infiltrators all over the camps, and they will launch acts of violence as soon as you get to the front. So to get rid of that danger, you're not going to be anywhere near the front. And I'm like, okay, that sounds reasonable. Darren Pills is like, hey, this older gentleman who came in here, he needs like $300 to cover his hotel room. And I'm like, okay, let me go get $300. And I put my ATM card in the machine and my accounts were shut down. So I asked Travis if I could borrow $300 for him. And he said, sure. And he gave me the money.
0: And how did your accounts get unfrozen?
1: I had to get new cards for everything. It was like a fraud hold on the account. And then from there, the headsman took me down to camp. We toured around camp. And And what was
0: your first thought upon seeing that?
1: It felt like being back in the army. It felt like here's a bunch of tents. And there's trails between the tents, and it's nighttime, and you're walking around the perimeter.
0: Was it as well organized as a military camp? No,
1: not even close. I mean, it was total chaos. It's the dead of winter. The sun is going down every day at like 4, 4.30 in the afternoon. It's cold. The sky hangs like really low over you, and it's dark. And everybody's there for what they feel is like, this is the apocalypse. You're either— You or— think about it. First of all, if you're there and you're Native American, your people have already experienced the apocalypse. And this is simply a second one tied to the Lakota prophecies that, you know, they're kind of end times prophecies, which had to deal with fighting the black snake. I mean, it's literally a big, long thing filled with oil. And if you're there for a cult that believes this is the kickoff to the actual apocalypse, you're you know ready for it. If you're there for the environment, you're there to try and stop an apocalypse. It's like the book of Revelations happening, but without any supernatural events. So the whole idea at the end of the Bible is that on judgment day, the dead rise. Okay. And that's it for mankind. Well, what is oil? It's we're literally have dug up ancient death and then we put it up in the air and it'll bring about our end. The only difference is nobody's going to show up to save us. So for all of us, it felt like this is it, throw every card on the table right now. And the thing is, for people who were there, you weren't really connected to the outside world. It would have to be somebody uploading a video at the casino that would take forever. But in the camp itself, you could have electronics, but you just couldn't communicate with anyone. People said this was really happening or or not, but the phones were like instantly losing their charges. And it felt like all the frequencies are being stepped on, and that's why we were going to put that money towards having a satellite phone so we'd have communications. But Mike Wood never got the phone, and
0: the money that you raised from the GoFundMe,
1: Mike Wood, my partner, veteran stand, who actually controlled the money, wasn't there. Got a friend of TYT, uh, Michael Woods here. People see the the one point one million. While GoFundMe has been great then that's, they take 5% off the top.
0: Too. And true. then by the time they actually put it in my bank account, then every single day they would spend, you would, I could only spend like four or $5,000. So you would have to call them in the morning to get more. And I would
1: call them every morning, spend hours on the phone.
0: Were you getting that feeling in your chest?
1: Oh yeah, constantly. Like it was like my, my heart was just like racing. I was like laughing every five minutes. I felt happier than I ever felt in my entire life. I'm like, this is what I was born to do. And this may be my last 48 hours alive. So I'm going to enjoy it. There was so much going on and it was incredibly important. Yeah, to there's like, a
0: mission, a greater purpose. There's a mission,
1: a greater purpose. In the civilian world, you don't have that. In the civilian world, you're getting like 15 bucks an hour to sit in this office and answer people's questions or go make my coffee or go park my car. There's no purpose behind any of that. This felt purposeful. I probably got back... To the hotel, the casino at like two or three in the morning. And there were eight of us that were sleeping in this tiny room, like with all right next to each other lined up. And that was kind of the sleeping arrangements for the rest of the time there. Like you would shift between rooms, but there would always be at least eight to 10 people in a tiny room for two because there was just no room anywhere. The next day, that second day I was there. I went out onto the bridge just outside the camp that had been closed off. This is the bridge that had become the front line of the protest and clashes with police and mercenaries. And then a couple days before I went out, there was a huge hullabaloo on the bridge. Like a lot of people were injured. I'm sorry, this
0: happened before you arrived? Right
1: before I arrived, like maybe a week before.
0: So you have the bridge and on one side are the protesters and on the other side are the mercenaries and police.
1: Yes. You know, barbed wire and armored vehicles and guns pointed at us and National Guard by that point, because North Dakota mobilized the National Guard as well. So we're like surrounded and we've stood a couple feet away from the National Guard general and the North Dakota National Guard liaison that initially called me when I got out there and Sheriff Laney, who was the kind of short mustachioed fellow that talked to the press a lot during Standing Rock. And James Reese from Tiger Swan. And I felt like they wanted us out there to fight because if you fight, then you can impose martial law. So one side of me is thinking Gandhi and the Salt March. The other side of me is thinking what happens when a Soviet trained dictatorship wants to instigate a civil war. And what you do is you commit an outrage that gets people mad. If you look at the start of the war in in yugoslavia it was a peace march and there was a sniper and it killed a bunch of people in the peace march and once that happened civil war is on
0: on april 5th 1992 the streets of sarajevo were filled with bosnian muslims serbs and croats demonstrating their support for a new independent multi-ethnic state suddenly shots rang out a sniper's bullet claimed the first casualty of the Bosnian War.
1: If you look at Syria, there was a peace march. And during that peace march, a sniper killed a bunch of people. Civil war is on.
0: So in March 2011, the Arab Spring came to Syria when dozens of peaceful Arab protesters were shot dead by President Bashar al-Assad's security forces, prompting nationwide unrest.
1: I could just see the same thing playing out in the United States. As I stood on that bridge, I remember thinking, man, I could die right now. Like someone could just shoot me. And the sheriff said, you know, all my people are getting death threats. How do I know you guys aren't going to assault us and try and kill us? We have received very concerning intel that an element within the protest movement wants to exploit veterans with PTSD, arm them, and try to trigger their PTSD and turn them aggressive. I told him, we've all been getting death threats too. And in a brief moment of clarity, I said, we're in the middle of an information war. And Russia wants us to fight each other, and they want an outrage to happen. And I can tell you, none of our people have weapons. We didn't bring any weapons. We're not looking for fight, but we want to help save the planet, and we want to respect the Constitution and the treaties that were signed with these people. Phyllis comes out, pulls us off the bridge, because a whole big line of veterans had started to form behind us. Like a couple hundred guys came out onto the bridge. So that was the last time I went out on the bridge while I was there. And I left with her. I went up to what was called Facebook Hill. And Facebook Hill was in the camp that was closest to this bridge. And it was called that because it was the only place you could get cell reception. And up there on Facebook Hill, I ran into Remy, who I'd been connected to, I think, through Mike Wood as a guy we could talk to who could coordinate sending supplies out like about a week before we got out there and he was like ex-navy guy navajo uh he'd been up at camp for months this project was put together by phyllis young and wesley clark uh, he came out reached out about a couple of weeks ago and he wanted some on the ground organizing that was happening uh, so he reached out to me he wanted somebody who was trusted and also a veteran His girlfriend Desiree was super nice, like, and they had this yurt at the top of Facebook Hill. And, you know, you sit around, you talk to people for about 20 or 30 minutes, but there's always a crisis. And everybody's worried about infiltrators on every side. And I've already had a couple people pointed out to me as infiltrators uh, by guys in my own group. Like, I've heard that guy's an infiltrator. And Seven McDonald had joined me out there.
0: And Seven is the PR woman you met through Nora.
1: Yeah. And she pointed out somebody who would uh, she'd known from the Bernie campaign. And she's like, that guy's an infiltrator. So I've already got my antennas up and I'm looking at two people. I'm like, are there infiltrators? And then I met, I mean, I'd seen him the night before, but this guy named Travis, the guy who loaned me the $300 to give to Crow Dogs, who was... The XO out there, the guy in charge in our organization before I got out. And he'd picked up all this shrapnel and stuff from that big battle on the bridge and was, I don't know, photographing it and giving it to the legal collective. But my time was spent going from tent to tent to tent to figure out, okay, where is everybody located? Who's the kind of, you know, de facto leader of this group? What did they want me to do? What did they want me to tell people? I spent the next day trying to make sure we had tents. L'Oreal Blackshaw, the woman who was put in charge of Veterans Stand by Phyllis right when I got there, was supposed to be in charge of getting all these tents set up. They never got set up. So I was starting to panic Like by the middle of the day that none of these tents had been set up. As the sun went down, I mean, veterans were streaming in. There was a line of cars going out like a mile or two from the entrance to camp. It was like a, a parade of lights going on into the distance. This woman named Victory had a tent dropped off at like, I don't know, 30 minutes before the sunset. And I like found the veterans tent where I was coming in. I'm like, all right, I need like six people. Let's go build this tent. And we ran out there and it was kind of down near the river. In the army, you have what are called GP medium tents. It's like the standard Big tent people camp.
0: How big is it? How many people fit? Oh,
1: like, you know, 40, 50 people can sleep in it.
0: Oh, wow. Okay.
1: Yeah. Even though it sounds GP medium, you're like, oh, it's like some little tent like you'd set up in your office. No, I mean, it's a huge tent, you know, big canvas flaps and stuff. What was weird was the tent stakes were not metal, they were wood. And everybody noted that. And I only mentioned this because the tent itself was part of a psyop. Just remember, there's a tent set up. Out by the river, it's like a 20-minute sprint from the top of Facebook Hill to where this tent is. And at the same time, I'm told you know, there's going to be some event that the elders are putting on for Tulsi Gabbard and for the veterans that are coming in down at Sitting Bull College, which is like a 20 or 30-minute ride away.
0: And Tulsi Gabbard was a Democratic member of Congress who gained prominence in 2016 as a Bernie Sanders supporter and for suggesting the DNC had unfairly favored Hillary Clinton in that year's primary. Over the next four years, she would become known for constantly pushing back against evidence that Russia had attacked the 2016 U.S. election. After a failed 2020 presidential run, she left Congress and changed her party affiliation, becoming a guest host for Tucker Carlson.
1: And... There's probably, I don't know, one or 2,000 veterans that are in there. And, you know, Phyllis gives a big welcome thing. And then Brenda Whitebull gives a speech. And L'Oreal gives a speech. And Tulsi Gabbard gives a little speech. And Phyllis, like, gives me the microphone. She goes, now you give a speech. So I gave a little kind of wing-ding speech. I have a firm belief that heart matters more than money. And we're all subjected to a culture that says none of us are good enough unless we spend money to buy things. And I'll tell you, what, I've never met better people in my life than the veterans that helped put this together. Came back, I think I got dropped off at camp. I wandered around for a while. There was always like a, a fire burning somewhere and people around it, and just stand around and listen to people talk and sing or pray. And then, um, I think I spent that night, Remy might've hooked me up with the indigenous media tent and I crashed in a cot in there for like two hours or three hours. I think I laid down at two in the morning and I was up by like 4.30 because I could hear drums and somebody praying right before sunrise. But everybody started to trickle in. We realized we had thousands and thousands of people
0: Thousands of military veterans across this country are converging on North Dakota.
1: After nearly 5,000 U.S. military veterans joined the front line at Standing Rock, a new movement is in the works. And everybody realized we may be, who knows what we're going to be facing. And so I go to J.R. American Horse's thing, and J.R. American Horse was from the reservation. He was an older guy, a Vietnam vet, nice guy, but he was like kind of the leader of, I guess, Red Warrior camp or one of the, the first people to go out there and start the protest, and was also super religious, and in the same way saw this as kind of an end times, you know, showdown. The United States of America does not respect the streets. The reason why I wore this cap is because I know where I stand in the army of the Lord. And he's like, I've got some special forces vets Native vets, they're going to go out tonight and they're going to zip tie the contractors. And I was like, holy fuck, please, mother of God, don't do that. Like somebody's going to get killed. And the whole time. his
0: plan, he's bringing in these special vets to cross the bridge. To somehow cross
1: the bridge, zip tie guys and disarm them. And all I can think is, and someone's going to get shot and killed when that happens, inevitably. And I'm begging them, don't do this, don't do this. And then, you know, I have to go from elder to elder to elder. And at the same time, I'm stopping by the vet organizations that are not really monolithic either. So you spent the whole day running back and forth between people. Like, what was the plan? How are these people going to be taken care of? How are they going to be fed? You know, and none of those answers were clear to me at that point. You never know where anyone is, there's no connection. So you go from one to the other and you kind of walk a circuit. Then you go and you do the same thing up in the casino. You're like, there's these four different rooms that people seem to gather in, go from one to the other. I'm down in the casino.
0: And this is night three?
1: This is like night three, I think. And now there were like 12 people staying in our room, double bedroom. One bathroom. Yeah. It's probably, I think it's like two in the morning, three in the morning at this point. And the only space is, you know, those little wooden desks they have in the hotel room. Seven was half under one of those desks. And there was just enough room that I could slip in under the desk and lay down half curled. That's how packed the room was with people. Every square inch of floor is taken up. And I laid there for a while thinking, God, how am I going to sleep through this? And is this what God wants me to do to lay here? Am I supposed to lay here under the desk right now? And I think Sedef was making out with Chris on the floor nearby. And I thought, that's it. I got to, I got to get out of this room.
0: And Sedef is the Turkish American woman you started hanging out with the summer before Standing Rock.
1: Yeah. And I went downstairs uh, to the bar and it was, I don't know, probably four in the morning. Seven got up as well. And we both sat down at the bar because it's where you could get free water. and talked like about the infiltration and that everybody was really worried about it. No one was sure who was on what side. The next day, this is now Sunday, that morning, there's a dude with a hatchet angrily waving it around, telling everyone, you know, the headsmen are bullshit. Fuck Phyllis and all these female elders. It's time to put the man in charge and waving this hatchet around in everybody's face. And I was like, well, maybe I'm going to get killed by the guy with the hatchet. I'm like, hey, and I, you know, kind of talked him down and calmed everyone down and moved on to the next crisis. Then I I hop a ride over to the main camp with somebody. And as I'm getting there, everybody starts to link hands all around the camp, like a big circle, some kind of meditation to wish us all luck because the protests were supposed to start the next day on the 5th. But it's that golden hour. In the afternoon, I get near Facebook Hill to find Phyllis and this African American woman, probably in her late 20s, early 30s, walks up to me and is like, "I'm here from the Obama administration, and just so you know, in 10 minutes, they're going to deny the easement to the pipeline. Denying the easement means they can't build the pipeline across the land." Suddenly, it gets announced to everybody, you know, the easement's denied, and a huge cheer goes up from everybody in camp and. All the elders in the tribe go down there to the middle of camp, massive cheers are up. And it was like, yay, the good guys won. Either we make it or
0: break it. And uh, I guess uh, we made it. <laughs> this is the best news that I've heard forever. The best news for Native people, Native country, the whole United States, all the people. Because water is so precious. We gotta- won! Yeah, we just won. We won. We
1: just got a call from the White House and the Easement's gonna be canceled. And thank you, God. Oh, <laughs> God. I mean, praise God. I mean <laughs> so wonderful. It's unbelievable.
0: Was this a transformative moment for you? Because it was that was your goal.
1: Yeah, no, and I and I was at and at the same time, I'm like, cool. And now I don't have to die. <laughs> um and everybody was like cheering and it was great. And then all the elders and and folks came down and they had their pictures taken in the middle of camp and Tulsi Gabbard got her picture taken in the middle of camp. And I'd just gotten a weird text from J.R. American Horse, the guys trying to disarm the mercenaries saying I betrayed him. And now he knew how it felt to be betrayed when you thought you'd be victorious and then I walked back towards this little shack they were using as a TOC, a tactical operations center, like your little mobile headquarters when you're in the army. This guy named Sanderson was like, hey, uh, there's something going on at the back gate. Something's going down. You need to go deal with it. And just a couple hundred yards away, it was really packed, really crowded. And as I'm walking to this traffic jam at the back gate of the camp, this shorter vet walking beside me and he goes, hey, LT, what's going on? I'm like, well, there's something going on at the back gate. And he said, oh, you didn't hear, did you? He goes, oh, last night, you know, L'Oreal. And she came in the tent and, and she asked for volunteers for a mission to search the camp for weapons and that there could be live fire. So I volunteered and then we searched the whole camp for like four hours. And I was and I had no, no idea this had happened. And. I'm like, what am I walking into here? And I walk up towards the back gate and there's like, these four people are arguing and pushing each other. And there's kind of chaos around this traffic jam. When I look back on it, I think it was a fake fight. And suddenly Sanderson runs up to me and he goes, dude, AIM's about to stab you right now. Like right now.
0: Okay. So one of the veterans out there, Sanderson tells you that members of AIM are trying to stab you. And AIM is the American Indian Movement, which is the Native American activist organization whose members organize the protest.
1: Yeah. I turned to Sully, the guy that I drove up with, and he goes, all right, let's get you up to Remy. The guy who coordinates sending supplies out. And Sully took me up the hill and my heartbeat started to go up. And then we went into Desiree's yurt and Remy was in there. And Sully's like, AIM's about to kill him. And Remy said, okay, take my vest. And he he gave me his bulletproof vest. And he goes, do you know how to use the coagulant? And he held up a little vial that's attached to the vest. I'm like, yeah, sure. So I threw it on and I slipped out the back of her yurt. And I crawled under a barbed wire fence. And I walked back along the road in the dark. And Sully walked with me. And about... I don't know, 15 minutes into the walk, and it's getting super cold. SUV pulls up, and it's Travis. Travis is like, hop in, man, hop in. And they go, and they pull me behind the gas station outside of the casino, off to the side where no one can see me, and they tell me all the intel they're getting is that AIM is about to kill me, and I need to evacuate Standing Rock for the Cheyenne River Reservation, like immediately.
0: And you're being told this by Travis and Sully, right? Two guys who are core parts of your organization.
1: Yeah. And I said, I can't do that. There's this ceremony that Phyllis said we got to do tomorrow. And they said, dude, you're going to die. You're going to die. I'm like, I came out here and I feel it's just for this. And I'm sitting here in the car with these two guys who are telling me I'm about to be killed and that I need to leave. And I think, I don't know either one of these people. Sure, we shared a drive out somewhere. We chit-chatted. We talked online. We emailed. I don't know either of these people. And I thought, this is it, man. I'm, these guys are going to kill me. These guys are contractors. And I I told him, look, I I came out here to do this ceremony. And, you know, I'm going to be honest with you. There's like supernatural aspects to it. And they took that like completely matter of factly. They're like, okay, but you know, you could die. And I said, well, here's the thing. I'm, I'm literally the angel Metatron and I'm on earth just to do this thing tomorrow. And I don't care who's trying to kill me. I'm going to do this ceremony and there's nothing in the world that can stop me. And so I sat there and I thought maybe they'll kill me right now but they didn't. And I sat in that truck for like a couple hours, as they said, their friend Victory was trying to find a safe place in the casino to hide me. They brought me back to the hotel, supposedly a room that had been found. Travis went in and, you know, before he'd been kind of like a vet who'd been out for a few years and just kind of happy-go-lucky But now, like, he jumped up on the bed, checked for listening devices and the smoke detector and in the lights, and he just moved with a reflex and a power that told me he really wasn't out. And then he said, you need to stay here for the night, and he took off his shirt, and his entire body was covered in a tattoo that all folded into a central point in the middle of his chest. And it was a question mark. And I thought, I've got to get out of here.
0: So from what I understand, this marks a pretty stark dividing line in your trip to Standing Rock. That despite the victory, things got fairly dark for you over the next few days and then well into your time back?
1: Yeah. I mean, up to that point, I'd had vague suspicions. Uh, But up to this point, everyone's been building me up. Uh, like telling me spirits are guiding me, and almost immediately after uh, the easements granted, everything starts to take a dark turn.
0: Okay, that's a pretty good place to stop for the day. Next week, we'll pick up on Wes being told he's about to be killed. Thank you for listening. We'll be back next week with more American Psyop. American Psyop is a bunker crew media production in collaboration with Midas Touch. It was edited and directed by Jack Bryan. Our producers are Stacy Scher, Marley Clements, and Jack Bryan. Executive producers are Ben MySalis and Grant D. Simone. Sound design by Joy Ellett. I'm your co-host, Emily Bix. Please join us again next time.